So to, uh, next week is actually our last week in Isaiah. Um, we've been in it since the, um, since the summer, and we're coming to the conclusion. And if, if I were writing Isaiah, I probably would have concluded right here. But thankfully, I didn't write Isaiah. But um, this is a beautiful passage, um, which is ins- it feels like to me like this is the climax of Isaiah. And uh, on Tuesday, um, Apple, um, the corporation, was very kind, and they emailed me, and they um, told me that I could uh, upgrade my, um, my Mac Air to a new operating system. And it said in their email, quote, uh, introducing high Sierra, better video, graphics, file system, more responsive and reliable, and the ability to let Siri be your personal DJ, which didn't actually convince me to download it. I haven't done that yet. But um, I was reading Isaiah at the same time, and... Um, trying to figure out when in the heck is this new heavens and new earth going to happen? Is, it, is this just what we would call heaven? Is it, is it going on right now parallel to us and simultaneously? Or is this something that's going to happen in the future? Um, is it this world? Is it the next world? I was trying to figure that out. And I thought of, uh, I've thought of Apple's High Sierra operating system and just how it's not entirely a new operating system when you upgrade. Uh, if you don't know about upgrades, it's basically it kind of keeps the, the essence of your old, but then it adds a lot of um, new stuff also. So it's not like going from a PC to an Apple, um, which would also be a tremendous upgrade. It's not like going a whole new operating system. It's like going, uh, it's like going to a new one from an old one that's better. And it's just a great way to think about this thing that Isaiah is talking about. The new heavens and new earth. Um, God is telling these people, Isaiah is telling them, who are in exile, they are poor, they are defeated, they have no hope whatsoever in the old system. They are in Babylon, for goodness sakes. Their temple is destroyed. Their cities are destroyed. We've seen this throughout Isaiah. And God says, uh, I am creating new heavens and a new earth. And it's present tense. So it's happening right there. So this kind of upgrade is slowly in operation. Um, And I think heaven means the invisible realm, and earth is just their term for all that is visible. So this entire new creation is being made. And so in this virus-ridden, clunky, ugly operating system that's constantly crashing that that they live in and that we live in as well, um, God is bringing the new heavens and the new earth. It's coming in. And a lot of people think of heaven as the, the hope that Christians have. So they'll say, well, when we die, at least we go to heaven. That kind of thing. Um, as if it's an alternative universe that is totally detached from this one. That's frequently the way that people think of heaven. Like it's side by side with this one. Like you could get there through a wardrobe. That's the idea of Narnia or something like that. Um, but that's not at all what Isaiah's hope is. And throughout the entire Bible, you see this. This Hebrew hope is so different from the world's hope. Even the hope of heaven, this is, this is different. Uh, it's very much continuous with this world. There's a lot of continuity between this world and the new heavens and new earth. Um, there are many similarities in the distance. It's kind of like if a, if a hiker is, is just exhausted and worn out and they're trying to get to the next peak and they see like a golden city um, you know, shimmering in the horizon. That's more like what this is talking about. It gives you courage to go on the same direction in the same world. It's, it's out there. It's in the same world, but it's out there. So it's very much continuous, but then it also has a lot of discontinuity, which is the new operating system. So I want to look at those two things. 
what are the similarities and the dissimilarities. So it's a compare and contrast. Um, first, I'm going to talk about what is continuous. I think it's surprising, the things that remain. And then I want to look at those things that are discontinuous and different. So um, if you look at the passage and you ask yourself the question, where are the similarities between this and the life we live in now? I think maybe the most surprising one, and I think this is beyond debate, that it is a physical world. It is a world that you will be able to have mass and weight and inertia. Um, You can touch things. You can taste things. The senses are working. It is not entirely uh, spiritual. It is not invisible. Uh, The physical world is not going away. The animals are not going away. Which, if you love animals, if you love your pet, it's very comforting that the wolf is there, the lamb is there, they're grazing together. There's going to be a difference in the way the animals relate, but it's going to be still animals. Uh, And even our work is not going away, which might seem unpleasant to you because you don't like your work. But in this case, the work is going to be enjoyable. Verse 22, uh, my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. As opposed to the work being futile and frustrating and um, terrible boss and nothing gets done and you're um, looked down upon and you're chided all the time. They shall long enjoy the work of their hands. And then our bodies are not going away. So we're still going to have bodies. Uh, They shall build houses implying that they're using their hands. And um, Also we know, we know that Jesus rose. And when when Jesus rose from the grave, uh, if you're a Christian, that's our hope. That Jesus rose from the grave. When he rose from the grave, he was the first fruits of the new operating system. And he had a body, and he ate, and, he, and he, they touched him, um, he drank, he had them to come, and he, he cooked breakfast for the disciples as a resurrected first instance of the new. So we have bodies, work, animals, and I think maybe the most surprising of the, uh, the physical symptoms is that uh, it's a city, it's an urban hope. It's uh, Jerusalem, verse 18. I create Jerusalem to be a joy. Now, Jerusalem was a city. Actually, in Isaiah's day, well, at least in his prophecy, when he's looking forward here, uh, Jerusalem is wiped out. It's gone. It's decimated. But it's a city, and Isaiah is saying that city is going to be upgraded. Uh, The the new heavens and new earth are going to essentially be surrounding uh, this metropolis, this giant metropolis. And so um, in the new creation, uh, there's a joyful, a city of perpetual joy. And this is, this is hard because when we think of cities, especially post-industrial revolution, when you think about a city, uh, a lot of people think of smog, and they think of crime, and they think of factories, and uh, getting and spending, and sirens, and you know, all these negative uh, Consequences of living in the city. People are always talking about how they need to move to the country. They want to get out of the country and live in like the, the suburbs or the exurbs to get away from the city. But Isaiah is saying that, and it's surprising, that this is a city. Um, this has art. It has architecture. It has culture. They will build houses and inhabit them. Verse 21. Uh, there's technology, the work of their hands, implying that all the things humans have done uh, over the course of the centuries... They're going to be represented there because the work of their hands is going to be there. There's gardening, planting vineyards, verse 21. Uh, we saw a few weeks ago in Isaiah 60, there's advanced transportation. There were ships. The ships of Tarshish are there. And then also we saw in Isaiah 60 that every cultural artifact is going to be represented there. 
Uh, Isaiah said, all the wealth of all the nations, all the inventions, all the cultural artifacts, the music, um, everything is going to be in the New Jerusalem. Now, as I tell you that, you might be a skeptic. Even if you're a believer, you might be a skeptic and think, uh, that's an overly literal interpretation of that passage. Uh, you might be thinking that that's naive, that, um, that Isaiah is just speaking metaphorically and symbolically. And I think I would think that way as well, if, if it were not for the fact that at the end of the Bible, uh, in the second to last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 21, um, you read it and you kind of scratch your head and, and you say, there's, there's got to be more going on than mere metaphor and symbol in this passage. Because when you look at Revelation 21.1, the similarities are amazing between that and what Isaiah is talking about here. So I'll read it. Just listen. Maybe you can look down at the text from Isaiah. John is writing on the island of Patmos. He's in exile, similar to the setting of Isaiah. John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. And then 23 verses later, into this descending metropolis, all the kings of the earth will bring their glory, the glory and the honor of the nations. That's verse 24. Now, it's amazing. And I could have gone on and on, but um, it's amazing the connections. If you want to read uh, that whole chapter and then read it in contrast or in comparison to Isaiah 65. These are two visions that happened uh, 700 years apart. And yet, there are these similarities that, are, that just kind of blow your mind. Now, a part of me thinks, well, John obviously just knew about Isaiah. I mean, he knew Isaiah well. So John is just basically, you know, cutting and pasting. And he's like, I like that little part. I'm going to put that in my vision. And that would make sense. That's one way of explaining it. Um, but I think if you were going to explain it that way, um, the problem would be that, that you would really be calling John's character into question. And maybe he was a liar. Maybe he intentionally fabricated that entire vision. But I, I tend to think no. I think I trust this guy enough that he wasn't totally deluded, that he wasn't trying to perpetuate a massive lie uh, on his Jewish people. Um, and also, what evidence would anyone have to doubt the integrity of that vision? I mean, is there any physical evidence? Is there anything from science that would make you doubt a vision like this? I don't think there is. So um, why would you want to doubt this ending to the story? Is there any better alternative ending out there? Um, of all the cultures of the world, the, the, the endings to the big story, you know, the way the world ends, are there better versions than this one? I would challenge you to look into that. I, I don't think there's a more profound or even plausible description of the way everything ends than this one that Isaiah was given. Uh, this is a city that absolutely stands firm in the most horrific circumstances. Uh, it's a city that has sustained countless lives, uh, countless people crushed under the weight of death and the weight of the curse, the weight of uh, frustrated work. This city affirms that the work that we do is never meaningless, it's never futile. It, it affirms nature. So when I see the sun... Um, setting or the sun rising up over the, the ocean, um, it says to me, that's going to keep going on. That's not going to end. 
I'm going to keep seeing that throughout eternity. And when I um, look at my you know, beautiful dog, or when you look at your, your pet, or just watching um, nature films and just being amazed at those animals that you see, you say that, that's going to always be there. And there's, there's not going to be an ending to the animal kingdom. Um, and then, of course, cities. I mean, I think most people have certain cities they love. Um, I love the city of London, and I love thinking that uh, those beautiful cities are not going to go away. I don't know how they're going to be combined. I don't know what facets of each are going to be brought together. But, but if you love cities, um, it's, it's very hopeful. And it's fascinating that this urban hope of a future New Jerusalem, um, it, it actually drove the churches right into cities. The word pagan, you may have heard of that word. Pagan sometimes you think of as uh, people who are godless or they're worshiping nature gods. That word pagan just meant uh, a country dweller because the early churches were so completely urban. Um, the gospel drove Paul right into uh, Antioch, one of the major cities in the Roman Empire, Ephesus, uh, Corinth, Rome, Alexandria. I saw a bumper sticker, um, I think it was two days ago, that was on the back of a car and it said, pray for Berlin. And then it had a, a silhouette of the city of Berlin. I'm assuming that's what it was. And then um, it had like a, a sun, sunrise over there. And then next to that was a Trump sticker, um, Make America Great Again. And I didn't really know how those two <laughs> fit together. I'm not saying they couldn't, but it was interesting. It was one of those juxtapositions. I love bumper stickers that, that kind of clash. And that was one of them. But I was thinking Isaiah would love that bumper sticker Pray for Berlin. And uh, I would love to have one of those, you know, if you're an artsy type person, make one with the Winston-Salem skyline and pray for Winston-Salem. I mean, that's just a great, I would put that on my car. That's a great, just, who would not want that? Pray for Winston-Salem. That's what this urban hope drives you to. It it encourages you to play in the parks uh, of the city. There are many to enjoy them, to relish them. That's part of what a city has. And to participate in the sports of the city. There's a, there's a civic-mindedness that I think has been lost a lot um, over the last you know, 70 years. To uh, enjoy the arts. This is a city that has a lot of arts. And to enjoy that is part of living into this urban hope that Isaiah is talking about. And to support her merchants. The merchants who start little businesses in this city. To be grateful and to support them. And to bless the workers. Um, if... If Christian bosses and owners would just treat their workers well, that would do more to help than um, all the mercy ministry put together, if if Christians would just treat workers well. So to bless the workers, and of course to volunteer um, about, um, you know, dozens of ministries. Uh, Solus Christus is a house um, that is run um, for women who are coming out of addiction or abuse, crisis control, to volunteer for Habitat for Humanity or the Bethesda Center, uh, homeless shelters, Salem Pregnancy. There's, a, there's someone in our church uh, named Liz Kyman. I don't know if she's here or not, but she works for Love Out Loud. And if you want to know how to get hooked into one of these volunteer organizations, that's how you do it. Um, Love Out Loud. And so there's a lot of ways that you can really bless the city um, to pray for the city, of course, being number one. But I think of Isaiah looking at the creation, and um, he is seeing this uh, dilapidated old house with incredible potential. 
So it's like if you've seen the, the Colonel Ludlow Inn over there, um, it's near St. Paul's. It's near the 4th Street Filling Station. Uh, it's, I don't know that street, but um, it's this beautiful old Victorian house that is just completely dilapidated. There's just vines growing. It looks like it's about to cave in. And I think, you know, it's got incredible architecture. Uh, the lines of the house, the, the roof lines are graceful. I'm sure the floor plan is amazing. And so because of that, God looks at this creation and says, I'm going to renovate that. I'm not going to let that fall into total disrepair. I'm going to get in there. Um, I'm going to use the same ingenious design that it had. I'm going to, in other words, I'm going to in, in really um, honor the integrity of that house. And I'm going to use the same decorative elements, uh, the same appointments, you know, that are even probably um, relevant to the time it was built. But new materials, new foundation, uh, new plumbing, new paint, new outlets, new windows. God um, is going to, to completely restore everything good in this same creation. We have this um, incredible car in our family, the, um, the Honda Odyssey minivan, which I've brought up many times in sermons. And um, it had about 200,000 miles on it. And it broke down um, on the way from Tarboro to Winston-Salem. It completely, the engine just kind of broke down completely. And so we took it to the Honda dealer and um, we asked the guy, you know, this is going to be a lot of money. Should we, should we fix this car? Is it really worth it to fix this car? And the guy kind of paused um, and looked at me like incredulously and said, are you kidding me? The Honda Odyssey 97 minivan? Like that's, that's one of the greatest cars ever made. He said. <laughs> so we went ahead and fixed it. Uh, thousands of dollars into a car with 200,000 miles. And I think sometimes you look at this creation and you say, is that really worth fixing? Really? Like that world with all that horrible stuff going on with these mass shootings and the wars that are going on as, you know, the schools that have students that don't want to learn anything and teachers that are miserable. And you look at it and say, all this pain, is that worth saving? And God says, are you kidding me? This creation is incredible. You know, it's, the stuff's all there, it just needs to be renovated. And that's what God's going to do. And that's the first point, is there's a lot of continuity between this heavens and earth and the one that is coming, that is already kind of uploading, and it's going to be upgraded. Now, number two is the discontinuity. There's a lot of differences, too. Thank God. There's a lot of differences between this heavens and earth and that heavens and earth. At the very end of the Lord of the Rings, um, Sam Gamgee, who's this brave little hobbit, wakes up in a hospital bed, and uh, he thinks that the entire world has been destroyed. Middle Earth has been destroyed. Kind of like Isaiah. He thinks it's over, that the first creation is pretty much ruined. And there next to him is the great wizard Gandalf, the wise old wizard. And uh, Sam says, Gandalf, but I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What has happened to the world? And Gandalf says, the great shadow has departed. The great shadow of Mordor has departed. And then it says, and Gandalf laughed. And the sound was like music. And the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment for days upon days without count. Days upon days without count. And then he hears this laughter. And that is, that is the discontinuity. Is that this new heavens and new earth will be just filled with joy. 
filled with joy in a way that we cannot even imagine. And not just laughter and not just uh, smiles and, uh, and happiness, but there's something, even the sadness will be represented there and the, the joy will be ungirding that. I mean, a kind of a joy that could not have been possible without the sadness. There'll be this joy, this quality of joy. Verse 18, be glad and rejoice forever. Be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. And why should we be joyful? Because the great shadow has passed. Or as the Bible would say, the curse has been lifted. The curse has been lifted. That's what Isaiah 65 is talking about. After Adam and Eve were recruited by Satan to be his ally in Satan's war against God, his treachery, his treason, after Adam and Eve had been recruited by Satan to be his ally, God put the world under this terrible spell, this curse. And in Romans 8.20, it says that the world was subjected to futility, the world was placed in bondage to corruption, and in the groaning pains of childbirth. It was a curse that was laid upon the world because of the fall, because of this unholy alliance that had been made, because of this rebellion. It had to be cursed. And so Adam and Eve were cursed. And it says in Genesis 3.16 to Eve, he said, I will surely multiply pain in childbearing. Genesis 3.16. Eve was cursed. Adam was cursed. Genesis 3.17. Cursed is the ground because of you. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth. And they were separated from the presence of God. They were kicked out of the garden. The curse on Eve, I will multiply pain and childbearing. The whole family structure, the whole family system, childbearing, um, everything about families is cursed as the curse is laid on Eve. And then everything about work is cursed as this curse is laid upon Adam. Everything terrible about work and family. Which Sigmund Freud said, these are the two great things, these are the two great matters in life. Love and work. And uh, he, I don't think he knew this story of the curse, but that's what he was tapping into. That these are the two things that have been cursed. Now notice the way that Isaiah, and I'm not going to go into this too much detail, but notice the way that he has those two elements of the curse being lifted. So in verse 25, the, uh, the enemy, the archenemy Satan, is permanently crippled, permanently destroyed. Dust shall be the serpent's food. There will never be another fall. There's no way that this new creation is going to fall into ruin. So that's the first part. That curse is going to be gone. Now the curse on Adam is also broken. Verse 23a, the first part of 23, they shall not labor in vain. And then Isaiah goes on and on and on to say how the work of their hands will be preserved. Nobody else is going to use it or steal or take the ideas um, that all the work that we do is going to be blessed and represented and we're going to enjoy the fruits of it. So the, the curse on work is gone. All the things that you hate about work, all the frustration, all the anxiety about getting a job or losing a job or applying to schools to get a job, all this is going to be gone. All the meritocracy, all the comparing, all the self-righteousness that has to do with work, gone. And then the curse on Eve is broken. Verse 23b, they shall not bear children for calamity. All the terrible things about marriage and childbirth and child rearing, all the things about families, people growing old and dying, all that's going to be gone. All family, all work, it's going to all be gone. The curse. And then the relationship with God is restored. They're no longer kicked out of the garden. Verse 24, before they call, I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. So that's how much he's going to be attentive to us. No more broken fellowship with God at all. So I love how Isaiah puts this. The former things 
shall not be remembered or come to mind. And those are the cursed things. And then I love how John interprets that in verse 4 of Revelation 21. Another one of those amazing connections. Again, I would encourage you to read Revelation 21 in light of Isaiah 65. Um, Isaiah said the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. And then John says in Revelation 21.4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. No mourning, no crying, no pain. For the former things have passed away. And so that's what joy is. It's the, and it starts to happen now. As we see little ways in which these curses are being lifted. Um, as we anticipate that. As the, uh, the great shadow is passing and as, as, as Satan is gone forever, it's kind of like the Hebrews on the far side of the Red Sea looking back and knowing that the Egyptian empire will never torment them again. And that old life of slavery is gone. There's a great uh, British mystic named Julian, Julian of Norwich. She was from Norwich. And... Uh, she was living um, right around 1350. So uh, she, was, um, she was an anchorite, which means kind of she was like a female monk. And she was very young and had suffered a great deal in her childhood. And she had seen a lot of suffering. This is the 14th century in England. So a lot of poverty, a lot of death, very young death. And so when she got so sick that she almost died, God gave her this vision. She had a series of visions. And I'm not saying I agree with everything Julian ever wrote, um, but I do love to read uh, parts of these visions she had. Um, She said, I often asked Jesus why he had not prevented the onset of sin. For then I thought all should have been well. And I even mourned and sorrowed because of it. But Jesus answered, it was necessary there should be sin but all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. And we live in a culture that does not believe that, that would dispute Julian and her vision, uh, where Metacritic gives higher scores to movies just because they're dark. I mean, if a movie is lighthearted and ends in a happy way, the Metacritic, they're going to they're generally reduce the score on that movie. Because we don't, we don't, we don't live in a universe that is jovial. Uh, our modern age thinks of things as kind of dark. And so happy endings are sentimental, and great art has to be tragic, and joy is superficial, and uh, Radiohead and Nirvana are like, they're serious artists because they're dark. And then Pharrell Williams and the Beach Boys are like, oh, that's just you know, trivial. Um, Isaiah says, no, be glad and rejoice forever. That's the mood. Um, so, you know, John Lennon is not superior to Paul McCartney just because he writes the darker strains of the Beatles. Um, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. And so in the end, the universe is not a tragedy. The universe is a comedy. And in the end, um, there will be rejoicing. And the, 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 the weeping and the mourning will be gone. The, the number of psalms that, that command us to... Uh, rejoice are way more than the ones who tell us to lament. They're both parts of this world, but the greatest part is the joy. Because all things will be well, and all manner of things will be well. For 37 years, Gallup has asked Americans in general, are you satisfied or dissatisfied with the way things are going? Now think about how you would answer that. 
In general, are you satisfied or dissatisfied with the way things are going? However you want to interpret that. Open into question. Okay, 1980, guess how many people were satisfied with the way things were going? Of course, none of you were probably alive. Well, a few of you were. I was alive. I was 10. Um, 26% were satisfied. This was the end of the Jimmy Carter era, and um, people were not happy with Jimmy. In 2000, 70% were satisfied. That's uh, coming off the, the Clinton years and the, the, the boom just before the crash. 70% satisfaction. That's amazing in the year 2000. Ten years later, 7% were satisfied. That was uh, 2009. 7%. And today it's 21%, which is bad, but it's not as bad as 7 But if you had pulled the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in 1980... 100% satisfied. In 2000, 100% satisfied. In 2009, 100%. And today, completely satisfied with the way things are going. They're very happy with the trajectory of the universe. They know right where it's going. It's got some dark patches. It's going to get darker, maybe, at the end of time. The Bible seems to suggest that. But the best Christmas carol ever is not in the bleak midwinter. I'm sorry if you love Christina Rossetti or that... That tune, uh, the best Christmas carol is, of course, Joy to the World, hands down. And the best verse is verse 3. No more let sins or sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. Notice thorns infesting the ground is referring back to the curse in Genesis. No more let sins or sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. It's exactly what Isaiah is talking about. And that's exactly what's going on at this table where uh, the blessings flow into all the areas of the curse. That's why he gave us this table. That's why the table has this element of cursedness to it. Uh, There is a strong element of of darkness um, in this table because the ultimate curse is feeling God's displeasure over you. And the ultimate blessing is feeling God's delight in you. And Jesus came um, to take the displeasure himself. And to be cursed himself. This is, a, this is a very, very cursed meal in a way. But it doesn't fall on you. It falls on him. And so he is basically drinking uh, our poison cup, our curse, even as he's handing us, as he dies, his cup of blessing. And he's like, drink this and live. And so on the night that he was betrayed, the Son of God...